in Harris, France, in 1694, there was a man born by the name of Voltaire. He grew up to be one of the most outspoken opponents to the Bible that had lived up until that time. He was a French humanist who believed that there was no such thing as divine inspiration. And he spent much of his life explaining how the Bible could not be God's Word. In fact, he said it was so full of errors and contradictions and mistakes and things that simply couldn't be divine. He said that he had done such a great job of proving the Bible is full of errors and mistakes and contradictions. He said that within a hundred years of his death, the only place you would be able to find a Bible was in a museum. He died in about 1770 or so. And if you were here last night, you understood that our statistics tell us that there, in the United States of America, 90% of the people have a Bible. Voltaire's boast that he had successfully refuted the Bible just simply was not true. Now, we're going to stop right here. And if this mic keeps going out like last night's mic did, then we're going to get rid of this one and we're going to put another one on until we get one that will do what we want it to do. Hopefully, this one will not give us as much problem as last night's. But if it does, we'll take a pause and we'll go from there. Now, if I were to ask you what you think of when I say archaeology, what would you say? Well, most of the time, what we think of when we say archaeology is something like a man with a leather hat. Generally speaking, we picture him with a bull whip wrapped around his belt, something like Indiana Jones, and everything he finds is worth $52 million. I mean, it's, like, it's like when I go right under one spot here, it goes out every time, like right here. That has nothing to do with archaeology whatsoever, but anyway. That's what you most of the time picture, something like Indiana Jones. And everything the person finds, you think about it as being real valuable and coated in gold, and it's something that came out of a pyramid, some pharaoh king or something. Do you know what the bulk of archaeology is? I'll tell you. You know where you find out the most about how a group of people lived and what they did on a regular day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, you go through their garbage. It's what you do if you want to find out what people did. And so the bulk of archaeology is when people find a garbage dump, from 500, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 years ago, they have hit the jackpot. It's not a bunch of golden artifacts from some king's reign most of the time. Most of the time, it's little pieces of pottery, little shards of something that they were using in their home, little bones and things like that. The bulk of the archaeologist's job Lots of times, they will spend 10 years in an area no bigger than this building, and they'll go there for about three or four months every single year, and they'll have something like a toothbrush. And they'll work on a piece of area in that city, whatever, for three months, and it might not be any bigger than, oh, you're looking at the size of a pretty decent television 
See? Now, that's just not exactly as exciting as the movies make it out, is it? But you know what we do find when we start looking at archaeology? We find a way to verify what the biblical text has said. Now, when we go to the Bible and we discuss the inspiration of the Bible, what we mean by that is that God infused his message into human writers. And those human writers put down exactly what God wanted them to write, often, well, not often, always verbatim, but we often see that meaning and import is put on one singular word in the text. Sometimes it's a plural word instead of a singular, or a singular word instead of a plural. If you go to the book of Galatians chapter 3, you'll read about a prophecy that was made about the seed of Abraham. And then the text there says, he does not say unto seeds as of many, but unto your seed as of one, and that seed is Christ. Now, it's interesting to me what the New Testament writer is doing there. He's saying that inspiration is so clear and the message is so perfectly preserved that the inspired writer Paul can look at the Old Testament text and use a singular word, seed, and know that that word is from God. Now, when you go to archaeology, what you find out is that archaeology can help you validate and verify the biblical text. Now, here's why that's important. If God is all-knowing, not only does he know the future, but he knows everything that happened in the past. And if the book that you're holding in your hands, the Bible, is a book that was inspired by God, then everything it records should be exactly historically accurate. And let me tell you why this is superhuman. Let's say today we have someone that writes a history of the Civil War. And that's what they do. They write a history of the Civil War, and they explain that so-and-so was a general at this battle, and they lost this many soldiers in this battle, and the Union lost this many soldiers, and the South lost this many. And then they explain that there was a political leader who had sent a message here and there, etc. And they write that book today. Do you know what often happens when a person will write the history of the Civil War, within 5, 10, 15, or 20 years, new information will have come to light, and that message that they thought was sent by this political leader actually was not sent by him. It was sent by his secretary, and he didn't know anything about it, and information comes to light so that that history book has to be revised. It's interesting to me that History books in the school systems change every 5, 6, 10, 15 years. And often that's the case because they've recorded something that just simply we have found more information that shows that can't be what actually happened in history. Now you would think if humans, about 40 of them, over a period of about 1,600 years, if they were the ones that wrote the Bible without any divine help, what should we find? Well, certainly we would find errors. We would find mistakes. We would find things where they had said this happened, but that didn't really happen. Or so-and-so did this, and so-and-so didn't really do that. So that's what we're going to discover tonight, how superhumanly perfect history has been recorded 
in the Bible. Now, some things you just can't ask archaeology to do. Let me tell you what I mean by that. If Jesus really did walk on water, what's going to be the archaeological evidence that has been left of that particular miracle? Well, nothing. There's going to be no footprints in any type of preserved water structure. There's going to be no uh, writing as far as on a stone or a tablet of something like that. Some of the things you're just not going to have archaeological evidence to nail down. It's not as if we can say, okay, archaeology is going to prove every single thing in the Bible because archaeology just can't do that. But now, can you look to archaeology to validate and verify some things that are in the Bible? Absolutely, positively. And when we do, you're going to see what we find. King David. I'd say most of you are familiar with King David. King David's story, if you were to run it through, he's mentioned in over 1,000 verses in the Bible. He's the main subject of 62 chapters of the Bible. If you were to look at what, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you have several mentions of David and many of the chapters deal, deal almost entirely with his life. Then you recognize that he wrote 73 of the Psalms. The Psalms were the songs of Israel from about 1000 B.C. all the way through to the time of Christ, and we're still reading them today. They would, just like we do with our songbook, you would have someone say, we're going to sing Psalm 115. And he would stand up and lead Psalm 115. It was the literal songbook of the Jewish nation. And then if you were to look at the importance of David in the Bible, his importance is simply that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was going to come through his lineage. Now here's the problem. The problem is, I'm going to let you read it for yourself, this statement was made in 1987 by a very respected archaeologist by the name of Kathleen Kenyon. She said, too many people, it seems... Remarkable. To many people, it seems remarkable that David and Solomon still remain unknown outside of the Old Testament or literary sources derived directly from it. No extra-biblical inscription, either from Palestine or from a neighboring country, has yet been found to contain a reference to them. Now, do you know what skeptics did for literally decades with this idea? Okay, you've got David, who is a giant slaying hero, who rules a united kingdom that is the golden age of Israel. And the skeptics say, okay, if there really was a king by the name of David, why don't we have stone inscriptions? And why don't we have archaeological evidence? They said, since we don't, that proves that David never lived. And they began to mock the biblical text and say that the Bible was no different than other cultures and countries around it. The Bible writers would write myth and they would write legend just exactly like Paul Bunyan and his humongous ox blue and just exactly like the Babylonians would write about a man by the name of Gilgamesh and just exactly like people make up giant slaying legends all the time, that's what the Israelites did. Now, let's nail down something up front. 
Listen closely to this statement and let's work through it. The absence of evidence is never the evidence of absence. Now, work through that statement with me. The absence of evidence, in this case, we don't have archaeological discoveries about David, is never evidence that David was absent. Now, here's what I mean by that. Suppose that 200 years from now, someone decides they want to look up a person by the name of Kyle Butt. And yet, suppose that in Nashville, Tennessee, where I was born, the archive building had burned down, and my birth certificate was no longer there, and for some reason, all of the things about my life somehow had gotten destroyed. Now, it's almost hard for us to imagine that with the Internet and with all of the technology that we've got today. But suppose that someone 200 or 300 years from now decided they were going to get on the Internet and try to find information about a man named Kyle Butt who lived in 2015, and they never could find anything on the Internet or anything from an old house where I lived. My parents, my dad was a started out as a man who owned a car lot, car lot in Portland, Tennessee, and decided he needed to be a preacher. And so they sold the Chrysler dealership and went up to Bear Valley School of Preaching in 1978, spent two years there, and in their first 15 years of marriage, moved 16 times. There's no Kyle Butt home place. If you were going to try to track down a house where I had lived, good luck with that, and you'd have a hard time finding one for my dad or my mom, either one. If someone didn't find any information out about me in a three-day search or a year-long search or a ten-year-long search, could they then say, oh, must be the case that a man by the name of Kyle Butt never lived in 2015. Well, they could say it, but what would it take to disprove their conclusion? It'd be real easy. Well, what if after 10 years of study, somebody flips up a book called Out With Doubt that they found in their great-great-great-great-great-grandmother's library. And on that Out With Doubt book, it's fallen apart. You can hardly even hold it together, but the title, Kyle Butt, is on it. That's all you have to find. One book. And the year, let's say it said 2015, and now it's 2315, and 300 years later, they have found a piece of evidence that proves there really was a man by the name of Kyle. But wouldn't matter how long I had gone without being discovered, that's all you'd have to do to prove it. So if the skeptic has used this idea that since there's no evidence or information about David and Solomon, then it must mean that the Israelites just made up David and Solomon, what do we got to do to disprove that? Ah, oh, well comes across pretty easy what we need to do. And this is exactly what happened. In 1991, 93 rather, a man by the name of Abraham Byron in the ancient Israelite city of Dan. Lots of times in the Old Testament you'll read about things happening from Dan to Beersheba. That means it happened throughout the entirety of the nation of Israel from the northernmost point to the southernmost point. And in this place, Dan... They found this stone. This stone mentioned one of the kings of Israel and said that that king of Israel was from the house of David. 
You know, since 1993, the idea that the Bible made up the lives of David and Solomon has been absolutely muted because of this stone. This is a stone that validates the 1,048 verses in the Old Testament, the 63 chapters, the 73 Psalms, and for years, decades, literally, the skeptics had said David was a figment of the Israelite imagination, and in 1993, that came to a stop. Now, let's just be honest. What happens when the skeptic is presented with this information about David? Do you think the skeptic often says, well, you got me. I mean, yeah, David obviously was a person. We've been saying for the last 60 years that he wasn't. We are wrong. We need to go back to the drawing board, and we need to maybe recognize that the Bible's right when it talks about these people. You think that's what happens, generally speaking? Well, I see you shaking your heads knowingly with a grin on your face because that's not what happens generally. Generally speaking, what happens, which you wish would not happen, and in fact, sometimes a person who's really seeking the truth comes into this information and does check up and change. But generally speaking, when we find evidence of the house of David, what is the response to that? Okay, David might be a person, but... And then just fill in the blank with someone we haven't found yet. Now, yeah, but, you know what, we haven't found any archaeological evidence of go down the list of kings of Israel and get to you about your fifth or sixth one, and they say, what, what about him? And so, what would we have to do to satisfy such a skeptic? You mean we're going to have to find a stone that validates every single person that's ever mentioned in the Bible to prove to that person that the Bible is correct when it speaks? You know, that's asking for more evidence than anybody should ever ask for. That's just not going to happen. You know, that doesn't happen with any book that's ever been written in the past. Now, let me tell you this straight-up fact right now. No book in the course of human history has ever been validated to a degree that the Old Testament and New Testaments have been validated to. None ever in all of human history. Now, if a person wants to claim that the Bible's not the inspired Word of God, they're going to have to deal with the fact that it states historical accurate fact more and better than any book in the world. You know, what you find, generally speaking, when it comes to a person trying to deny that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, it's never because of the evidence. It's always something else that is at play. When the Bible says, buy the truth and sell it not, many people have sold the truth. They've sold it because they want to engage in a particular lifestyle that the Bible says is not something that a person following God should do. They want to practice a particular sin. They want to behave in a certain way. They just simply don't want the Bible to have the authority that it has if it's always right and if it's the Word of God. Because, you know, if it's always right about... David, and it's always right about Solomon, and it's always right about these other people that I'm going to tell you about, then it's also always right about every moral statement that it makes. It's also always right about every, you wouldn't, every command 
that it gives and every rule that it lays down and every truth statement. It's right about all of it. And so what we're going to see. Now, if we were going to say, what would leave, a, what would leave an archaeological mark? You know, of course, we would say that Jesus walking on water wouldn't. Even Jesus feeding 5,000 people wouldn't. What about somebody digging a tunnel under Jerusalem? You think that might leave a little bit of a mark that a person could uh, discover, could look for, could find? Hezekiah, maybe you recognize his name, one of the very few righteous kings in the nation of Judah. The Bible says in 2 Kings 20, 20, the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, his might, how he made a pool in a tunnel and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now, you would expect that if a man dug a tunnel under the city of Jerusalem, then you could go and find a tunnel that was dug under the city of Jerusalem if that actually happened. And you see in Second Chronicles, the same Hezekiah stopped the water outlet of Upper Gihon, brought the water tunnel to the west side of the city of David. Well, it just so happens that if you were to go under the city of Jerusalem, you would see this. This is Hezekiah's tunnel. Those are some friends of mine from Fried Hardeman University that visited Hezekiah's tunnel. You can go through it now to this day. What's very interesting about Hezekiah's tunnel is if you were looking right here, there is a cavity in the side of the tunnel. And that cavity had this rock inscription in it for... Well, from the time of Hezekiah until probably about the late 1800s. And in the late 1800s, somebody stole this inscription. It's called the Siloam inscription. And this Siloam inscription was removed from Hezekiah's tunnel and sold basically on the antiquities market. And here is what is interesting about the Siloam inscription. It states how Hezekiah dug the tunnel. And it says this. And this was the account of the breakthrough. While the laborers were still working with their picks, each toward the other, and while there was still three cubits to be broken through, the voice of each was heard calling to the other because there was a crack or a split or overlap in the rock from the south to the north. And at the moment of the breakthrough, the laborers struck each toward the other, pick against pick, then water flowed from the spring to the pool for 1,200 cubits, and the height of the rock above the heads of the laborers was 100 cubits. Now, this is just a matter-of-fact statement that is, it's almost like, do you know when you go into a museum that tells you about something like a dam or a bridge or some type of man-made structure, and there's a little inscription, a little thing that tells you how they built it and how much concrete they used and lots of times you'll read something like this particular hoover dam was built using this many cubic tons of concrete it took laborers this long to build etc that's what's going on here it's not in a museum it's just a little inscription right on the end of the tunnel that says here's what happened interestingly the story is that Diggers started on this side and diggers started on that side and they made a s-shaped curve till they got to the middle and then they were yelling across at each other. They could hear each other. There were about three cubits left to dig through. And they started digging through and eventually finished the tunnel. Now, this gives you two pieces of information. Number one, the Bible says Hezekiah dug a tunnel. And guess what? There's your tunnel. 
Number two, you have the inscription that gives you the details of the tunnel. Now, lots of times you're going to read in the Bible things that you might not understand because you don't know what was going on in the culture. Let me tell you what I mean by this. How long is a cubit? Well, you know, lots of times we've said a cubit is from an elbow to the middle of the finger. Do you know where we get that specific information? You know, we've said that's because the word cubit means forearm, but there was a royal cubit and a regular cubit and a standard cubit. It just so happens that this gives us one of the best markers for what a cubit is in all of ancient history. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Some of you have probably already jumped to the conclusion you know exactly where I'm going. It tells us that the tunnel was 1,200 cubits. Now, how can we get a good understanding of how long a cubit is with this piece of information? Okay, if the tunnel's 1,200 cubits and we measure it in feet, then we just divide how many feet we've got by how many cubits they say it was, and we've got the measure of a cubit. Well, it just so happens you measure the tunnel, it's about 796 feet. You round that up to 1,800. You've got 1,800 feet, it's 1,200 cubits, so that makes a cubit what? One and a half feet, just about exactly what we thought from elbow to finger, and this gives us the best, most accurate understanding of what a cubit is. Not only does archaeology help us understand that the Bible's right, but it also helps us understand more information about the Bible. Now, do you know what I could do for the rest of our time here in this 6 o'clock session? We could over and over and over and over, and listen to me, literally thousands and thousands of times do this one after another, after another, after another. Now, at about number six, or maybe number three, you guys would start thinking, okay, that's good enough for me. Thank you, Kyle. We really appreciate that. That's great information, but you had me at number three. Now, why do we keep... Here's what I'm trying to tell you. This seems almost redundant because you could do it so much, but there aren't other books in the world like this. Yes, it seems redundant because, yes, when it says Hezekiah built a tunnel, we can go find the tunnel. And yes, when it says David existed, we find a rock that says David existed. And yes, but the mere fact that you could do it all night long should show you that there's something very special about this book. There are entire books of thousand pages that document one after another after another of these. Now, why do you need those pages? Well, because the skeptic says, okay, what up, David, maybe not, but what about Hezekiah? Okay, Hezekiah, maybe not, but what about, and just go to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. Now, let me show you something that's very interesting. This is the Taylor prism I'm about to show you. It's called the Taylor prism because it was found by Colonel Taylor. About 15 inches tall. It's a six-sided clay prism. Here's what it looks like. Now, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? And I say that because the way that we save information now, you know, I've got some little thumb drives here that I put information on, and I take those little thumb drives out, and I can put them in a computer, or I type it and maybe print it out. I've got a little sheet of paper that I got printed out. How would you save information if you didn't have computers, you didn't have typewriters, you didn't have paper, 
Oh, a great way would be to make, we went to a Silver Dollar City today. My daughter and I did, and we rode the, if I understand it, the second best, what, the second best, the, what, roller coaster, that, it just skipped my mind. Second best roller coaster in the United States of America, Outlaw Run. You have a 160-foot drop. You leave your stomach up here. It catches up to you about three hills later. At the end, you do a corkscrew where you go upside down twice. And one time, you're hanging sideways. You're looking down, and you're looking up. Anyway, pretty exciting. But we also went to, really, that was just really a name dropper so that you guys would think I was cool going on the second biggest roller coaster because I really kind of get motion sick, and i got to rest about an hour and a half after every one of those. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. The guy was making pottery, and you can go to the little pottery store there and see him make this pottery. When you're making that clay pottery, it's very, very soft. And in fact, lots of times he'll take a little stylus, or sometimes, as I watched, he would even use his fingernail. And if there was something on it he didn't like, it's flipping around that wheel, and he would just carve it off of there. But then, all in the store there, the pottery, it was glazed and it was hard. And if you would have dropped it, it, was a bro- it would have broken. But you could have stored those clay pots that he was making for hundreds or literally thousands of years once you dry them out. Well, of course, the ancient kings knew that. And so what they would do is make these cylinders. And this cylinder is one that's already written on. But they would go in and get them and make them. And they would be a, a clean slate, just like a clean piece of paper. And then they would take a stylus and write on it. They would mark on it. And all those little lines that you see, you can see. It's almost like they're college-ruled, uh, almost like little college-ruled prism lines. See how straight they are, all of those lines. Each one of those is a line of text. And this is how they would preserve their history. Well, this guy has nothing whatsoever to do with the Bible. He's not a biblical writer. He's not preserving any kind of inspired literature at all. This guy right here is named Sennacherib, and he's recording what he did to Hezekiah in Jerusalem. That's all. That's all he's doing. He's got no dog in the fight as far as proving the Bible's the inspired word of God. He's just telling you, hey, he was a great king. His name was Sennacherib, and this is what he did to Hezekiah. Now, notice, here's what it says he did. As to Hezekiah the Jew, he didn't submit to my yoke, and I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts into the countless small villages in their vicinity. I conquered them by means of well-stamped earth ramps and battering rams. Himself I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. I surrounded him with earthwork in order to molest those who were leaving his city gates. Now, notice, Sennacherib says, I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities and to countless small villages, etc. Now, if we want to check what the Bible says against the Taylor prism, can we do that? Yes, we certainly can. And in 2 Chronicles 32, it says, Sennacherib, king of Syria, came up and entered Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. And in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now, what do you got? You've got a statement validating what the Bible said. Now, here's what's very interesting. Often, in ancient history, kings in other cultures didn't feel like they needed to record accurate history. Uh, You wives might understand this when your husband comes home from fishing. He explains to you that he caught a fish, and when he tells you how big it was, he said, oh, it's about this big. And then he's telling his buddy who asked him how the fishing trip went later, and he says, oh, it's about that big, yeah. And then by about the fourth time around, 
But this fish was so big that it was hauling his boat all over the lake, and he barely could get it in, and he had to let it go because he didn't have room in his life well. You understand what I'm saying? Well, the ancient kings, what we found, especially in other cultures, lots of times they would go and they might win a war, but they might only take 500 prisoners. Well, they don't want all of posterity to think they won this war and only took 500 prisoners. So they'll come back and say, we defeated 12 nations and took 15,000 prisoners. And what we'll find out later is, no, they didn't defeat 12 nations and take 15,000 prisoners. They just wanted you to think they did. And so lots of times we'll see a very huge embellishment in the nations around the city of, I mean, the nation of Israel. Do you know what you don't see in the records of the Israelites? You don't see that embellishment. In fact, not only do you not see the embellishment, but in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, what kind of history do you see recorded about the Israelite kings? They lost battles. They were unfaithful to their God. They were defeated in numerous instances. You see the exact opposite of that type of embellishment and that type of exaggeration. You see, you see the truth in all of its disappointment, in all of its whatever you want to say. It's the truth. Well, you see, Sennacherib says he laid siege to lots of the towns and villages, and actually he really did that. In fact, one of them was a city called Lachish. You read your Bible, you'll read about Lachish, and Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish. Now, here's why this is so very important. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem, but himself and all his forces laid siege against Lachish. Now, this is so important because we have found Sennacherib's palace. It's in Nineveh, in Assyria. And in his palace, on his wall, is a 70 linear foot pictorial description of his taking of Lachish. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. On one of his walls... 70 feet from here to however back 70 feet would be. You're looking at, what, 25, not quite 25, 23 and a half yards or so. So take 23 big steps from here back. That's how big of a wall relief Sennacherib carves about Lachish. And it's real interesting to look at. Now, like I said, this is not inspired stuff. This is just a wall picture from Sennacherib's palace in Lachish. Now, here's what it's got you got to really look kind of close to see what's going on. But here's Sennacherib's men right here. They're pushing a battering ram up these earth ramps, which is what he described. Here is a huge spear structure sticking out of his battering ram. Now, if you look real close, you got things that look like brooms flying at it. And then real close, you got something that looks like a big ladle, a big spoon with spaghetti flowing out of it. You think, what in the world is going on with the big spoon and spaghetti flowing out of it? Well, here's what's going on. These are the Israelite soldiers trying to protect Lachish. These are the Assyrian soldiers trying to besiege it. And these square things flying through the air are sling stones. These broom-like structures are flaming spears that are being shot or thrown at these battering rams. The battering rams are wooden, covered with leather. They are trying to set the battering rams on fire. The people who are manning the battering rams have these ladles that they dip water 
into and then pour onto the flaming firebrands that are shot from the Israelite walls to try to stop them. And so that's the picture that you've got here. This is a picture of the Assyrians have now defeated Lachish and they are taking prisoners from the city. Now, what's interesting here, you remember the story of Jonah? Remember why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? Well, lots of times, if you're a little kid, you think he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was scared. And these people were the enemies of Israel, and Jonah's scared to death, and he's afraid if he goes and preaches about God, then people are going to be attacking him for preaching about Jehovah God. That's not true at all. In fact, as you read the simple four-chapter book of Jonah, what you find out is Jonah goes to Nineveh on the second attempt after he's tried to run away. And he has like a, it's an eight-word message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's it. It's not like he says, hey, please repent. It's not like he says, God loves you. You need to do better. His message is this. In 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Now, his message is so effective that the king of Nineveh and all of the subjects put on sackcloth and ashes and mourn for their sins, and the king won't even let the livestock drink water for three days. Jonah goes up onto the top of a little cliff that overlooks Nineveh to wait for them to be destroyed. And they're not. And he says, God, this is why I didn't want to come to Nineveh. Because I knew that if they repented, you'd save them. And I don't want them saved. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine you guys inviting me to a gospel meeting here in Lebanon, Missouri, and I decide I'm going to do a road preaching campaign, and I start and for three days go through the city of Lebanon and say, anybody who is not a New Testament Christian is not going to heaven. And that's my whole message. That's it. And at the end of three days, and I've preached that message, not a message of of God loves you or not a message of hope, just, hey, you all, if you're not a Christian, you're not going to heaven, and everybody in Lebanon, Missouri, becomes a New Testament Christian. And I'm sitting in my car on, I don't even know where a good little hill is, overlooking Missouri, Lebanon, Missouri, the city here. And one of you comes up, and I'm just, I'm mopey and pouting and mad. And you say, Kyle, we just had the greatest gospel meeting we've ever had. We just converted the entire city of Lebanon, Missouri through the message that God gave you. What's your problem? And I said, I knew that's what was going to happen. I knew if people heard this message, they were going to repent. And I didn't want to repent. I wanted them to die. Can you imagine that? I mean, to us, that's almost like a, that's just, that just doesn't, you know what, though? Uh, this is the Assyrian description of what they were doing to the people in Lachish, it just so happens that the Assyrians were well known worldwide for being masters of torture. And they had done so much violence and done such horrible things to the children of Israel for so many years that the Israelites had built up a hatred inside of them to such a degree that they didn't even want them saved. Here's why. If you're watching these prisoners be pulled out of the city of Lachish, they are having to go by... These are stakes that are impaling these Israelite soldiers. 
See, the Assyrians would take those Israelite soldiers and they would impale them, those 16, 18, 20-year-old boys, those 45, 50-year-old men, the brothers and the husbands and the sons of the prisoners that they are taking and they would march them by intensely to make them see what happened to their sons and their brothers and their husbands. And then the Assyrians, as we found other reliefs, had a practice by which they would tie a person down and they would take a knife and they would flay their skin to very thin flays all the way up and down their whole body and then rub salt in them until the pain was so excruciating it would kill them. And that's what Jonah was dealing with. A culture of Assyrians who had done such brutal, terrible violence to the Israelites that Jonah didn't want them saved. Now, no excuse for Jonah because God tries to explain to him, hey, it doesn't matter what the Assyrians have done. They've repented and they're still my children. But you can understand it a little better, I think, when you see what was going on in the city of Lachish. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of what we have found of what the Assyrians actually did in ancient Israel, to ancient Israel and in ancient history. Now, here's what's interesting. Lachish was so valuable that Sennacherib set up 70 linear feet in his palace about. Do you remember what he said he did to Hezekiah? I trapped Hezekiah like a bird in a cage in the city of Jerusalem. Now, admittedly, we said that absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence, but you know what we never do find in all of the palace of Sennacherib? Never do find a single statement about what he did to Jerusalem. Well, we've got the Taylor prism. says he, he put Hezekiah in it, trapped him like a bird in the cage. There's no big wall relief about what he did to Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem was a capital city. Lachish was very, very small compared to what Jerusalem was. If he thought 70 feet on the wall of Lachish was important, what would he have done to the entire capital if he knew that he had taken it and they had taken tons more prisoners? And to... Let's see what happens. Why not Jerusalem? You know, he put Hezekiah there like a bird in a cage as a prisoner. 2 Kings 18, 17, maybe you'll remember this story. Then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. But Isaiah, you'll remember, told Hezekiah a message from God. He's not going to come in here. He's not going to shoot an arrow there. He's not going to come before it with a shield. He's not going to build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he'll return, and he shall not come into this city. Now, if you've noticed, you might see, okay, in the Taylor prism, he says he built a mound around it, and this says he's not going to build a siege mound against it. Here's all that that's talking about. A siege mound was something that was built right at the wall that you used to go into the wall and to destroy it. The mounds that he built were several thousand feet away from the wall just to keep people from going in and out. It had nothing to do with the siege other than he was protecting the area so people couldn't come in and out and bring supplies. Now what happens? Why doesn't he build a siege mound against Jerusalem? Well, you probably remember this story from when you were a little kid. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out, killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all 
dead. We had a lot to say about Lachish. Didn't have a thing to say about Jerusalem. Why? I don't guess he wanted to record in his chronicles that he woke up one morning and 185,000 of his best soldiers were dead. And so he just conveniently left that fact out of his historical account. Well, it's interesting to me, if you were to ask what happened to Sennacherib, we've got another chronicle, has nothing whatsoever to do with the Bible, just found about Esar Haddon. Here's what it says. A firm determination fell upon my brothers. They forsook the gods, turned to their deeds of violence, plotting evil. To gain the kingship, they killed Sennacherib, their father. Okay, well, what's the biblical text say happened? As you look at it, 2 Kings 19.37, Now it came to pass, as he was worshipping in the temple of Nishrach, his god, his sons Adramelech and Cherezer, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Esar had his son reigned in his place. We could do it all night. All night. I could stand here before you and one after another, after another, after another, after another. We could do this. Here's what's interesting. There was a man by the name of William Ramsey. He was educated in the mid to late 1800s. During the time that he was educated, no person who respected his reputation as a scholar said that the book of Acts was actual history. In fact, they said that the book of Acts was written in the 2nd or 3rd century, long after the events that it purports to record. And if you think that you're ever going to have a teaching position in any kind of biblical seminary or place where the Bible is taught, you just simply could not say that Acts was accurate history. And so William Ramsey said he was going to write a book that proved that once and for all. So he went over to Asia Minor where most of the events of Acts occurred and he took the proverbial spade with him and his sole intent was to write a book that said Acts is not accurate history and I'm going to show you why. Spent about all ten years over there, digging and scratching and finding. And he put his book out. St. Paul, the Roman traveler. And it shocked the world because when William Ramsey wrote his book that was supposed to validate once and for all that Acts couldn't be trusted as history, he said, I have taken a spade to Asia Minor and I have dug up everything I can find to disprove the book of Acts and everywhere I turn. It just so happens that what I have discovered is that you can press the book of Acts historically beyond the bounds of any other book that there is. And if you are fair with the text and you are fair with what you have found, you discover that Acts is some of the best history that anybody has ever written. You know what a person with a with an open, honest mind and all of the information from archaeology, you know what they would arrive at if they were being honest and assessing this? Well, they would arrive at the simple conclusion that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You have patiently worked with us through this last 55 minutes of information or so. It's amazing that you sat and listened for 55 minutes. And you guys are amazingly great listeners. 
You really are. I would have lost about 35% of a lot of audiences that I've talked to at about 635. You were still with me all the way through. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming this Saturday evening. No, you could have been doing all kinds of things. We're going to take about a nine and a half minute break, and we're going to come back here at about 10 after 7, and we're going to talk about the predictive prophecy that the Bible holds that is simply superhuman. So you're free to go until about 10 after 7.